0: Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Ben Chow. Ben is the president of CareConnect at Multicare Health System. He's responsible for extending the EHRs and other technology solutions to strategic partners. Ben also holds a dual role as principal of MultiCare Capital Partners, the system strategic and social impact investment arm. Ben has held several positions of progressing accountability at MultiCare, starting as an administrative fellow. He most recently served as director of technology advisory services, facilitating the organization's digital transformation to deliver consumer-obsessed, provider-empowering, high-value care Ben has brokered mergers and acquisitions led market strategy and facility planning and ran MultiCare's virtual urgent care and telehealth provider service teams. Ben has a bachelor of arts from the University of California at Berkeley and a master's in health administration from the University of Washington. He is the treasurer of Seattle adaptive sports where he coached their youth wheelchair basketball team for six years and a regular guest instructor at the University of Washington, Ben welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Josh. Great to great to be with you guys this morning.
0: It's amazing to have you on the show, Ben. You've carved out the most fascinating career for yourself. Um, you, like the bio suggested, you've led digital transformation for a multi-hospital health system. You've also implemented virtual care and digital care journeys for patients, and you're actively discovering and supporting the growth of healthcare innovation across many different avenues with MultiCare's innovation arm, the Capital Partners. So coming from the administration world, I'm curious to start the conversation, you know, how did you first get involved in digital health?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, like a lot of uh, mentors and and people in the industry, I think that a lot of folks start out in some type of operational role or maybe in a financial role or a strategic planning role, and they kind of fall into it. You know, Um, for me, I'd always been really fascinated by the appeal of what virtual care could bring, Um, And so when I joined multi-care five years ago as an administrative fellow, that was at the top of my list of things to think about just from an access perspective, from um, a potential return on investment perspective, et cetera. And um, at the time, there were a number of uh, industry barriers that really made adoption of virtual care difficult, whether it was payer regulations or payer parity or um, access to broadband or everyone having the right devices and, uh, you know, two two dozen different video clients. And so there was actually a moment in time in my career where I kind of was turned off by the, the options because I thought there were too many barriers. And but in the back of my mind, I always had that picture of um, I think it was a scene from The Jetsons where Elroy gets looked at by a doctor through a screen, and I was like, oh my gosh, they predicted this back in the '70s or '80s or whenever this was put together. So I figured, you know, it's only a matter of time. And uh, you know, I I uh, a lot of it I think came also came kind of came down to luck um, at the time when uh, I. I had a boss of mine, Christy McCarran, who recently retired at MultiCare. She was our senior vice president of retail health and community-based care. She led everything that really wasn't a hospital or the medical group at the time, right? It was, she had at some points quality, uh, strategy, some of our specialty service lines. Um, by the time she retired, it was uh, lab imaging, pharmacy, um, retail health, post-acute care, which was just an incredible amount of responsibility. And she was the person who, every time we had a new project that required creativity, she would get the call from our CEO and COO and say, we need you to run with this. And so um, she she took a flyer on me when the my predecessor left. And she said, um, I, I know you don't know everything. And I don't want you to be too concerned about not knowing enough because the team that you're going to be running with just knows different things. They don't know more than you, which, you know, for someone who's a couple of years out of grad school is the most affirming, you know, words of encouragement you could ever hear. Um, and she said, "I want. I know you're going to throw yourself into it, though, and that's what matters." And so, uh, fast forward a couple of years, and I've gotten to work s- with some really great internal and external strategic partners. Um, and I think that what uh, I've, I've been really blessed with is just uh, opportunities to to take an open lane. Um, good example: when COVID hit us in March of 2020, we were finally able to do something that we had never been able to because it was understandably risky from a financial and compliance perspective, and it was give out virtual care for free to the community as a public health service and benefit for folks who were concerned about whether or not they had COVID or the flu or just a standard cough or whatever it might be. Um, And we were able to really blow the doors off of what folks thought was possible from a virtual urgent care perspective. Um, And so ever since then, we've been working to continue to scale that success and really have it stick um, as we go into year two of the pandemic.
0: That's really awesome. I I actually did not know that Multicare did that. That's really awesome. Um, I think a common thread that I found throughout all of your career thus far, Ben, and I know it's an exciting path ahead of you as well, but is your emphasis on using data to accomplish specific goals. So whether it's improving the consumer experience, like you mentioned, or even solving health equity, uh, data has been kind of at the forefront uh, behind all of your decisions. And so I'm curious, what are the most exciting ways today that multi-care is using data to deliver care?
1: So I think that um, back when I was running our virtual care team and our, and our telehealth teams, you know, it was kind of a two-sided uh, business. One was truly revenue generating, dedicated group of providers, really around our first touch strategy, and the second was really around um, supporting providers who um, wanted to deploy telemedicine somewhere in their practice, whether it was you know just trying one video visit a day or a week or whatever it might be, and I think that what we always emphasized was patient experience. <clears throat> we always wanted the patient experience to be just as good as, if not better, than what people typically expected out of healthcare. And when we look at net promoter scores as you know a really good consumer benchmark. I think that the average net promoter score in healthcare is somewhere between 20 and 40, depending on the organization, which is really challenging for me to think about. Um, And uh, what what our uh, CEO, Bill Robertson, had always said was my expectation when we put together a true retail health first touch strategy that's really meant to be all wrapped around the consumer and their preferences and what they want. What do they complain about? They complain about access. They are not happy about parking. They don't know what their wait time is going to be. They want it to be easy for them. And I think that some folks conflated asynchronous care with um, a lack of patient centricity, and we found that just to simply not be true. For the two or three years in which we pre pandemic, when we ran, when we ran with our um, you know virtual urgent care um, uh, service, we were running at a net promoter score of eighty to ninety on a consistent basis. Um, and so for us, that was based on really fast turnaround times, low cycle times for customers when they did go through their virtual uh, visit. And so we track that obsessively. Um, and I think for us, we're going to continue to leverage that type of net promoter score. And it's become essentially a standard at multi-care from that perspective. But, you know, in the ways in which we think about delivering care today, and this is a bit of background, what CareConnect really means is, uh, is is that it's our technology partnerships business. So we're in the business of extending our enterprise electronic health record, Epic, and all the other tools and bells and whistles and third-party apps that come with it. And so for us, um, this is a fledgling business. We've been in business for a year and a half. We previously had it as kind of a, a secondary capability or side gig, if you will, to our enterprise technology efforts. And so for us, we have to think like any other startup or business out there has to when it comes to um, really measuring some of the key performance indicators that are, are marks of success, except this time I'm not really starting as a seed stage idea or a series A. It's more like a B or C where we're really trying to get the profitability. So every single one of my uh, leaders has their own set of KPIs. They have um, their KPIs around um, turnaround times around profitability, around um, you know SLAs to how quickly we close tickets, et cetera. And in the future, what we're going to be most interested in is, you know, when it comes to implementations of, of an electronic health record. For us, it's all about how much better can we get at this process. How much more incrementally can we be good stewards of our organization's assets? And what I love about this role is that I get to do that both as a leader of a team or an internal services company, and I also get to do that as um, a leader of our investment fund. And we basically get a different slate of KPIs for. You know the, the half dozen or so companies that we that we work with and have invested in thus far.
2: And Ben, you brought up something really interesting. You talked when you talked about uh, measuring NPS of these consumer experiences. I was wondering, are you measuring NPS separately for different patient consumer interactions? As in, are you measuring NPS specifically for, let's say, the virtual care experience, and a different NPS for um, you know other parts of the consumer journey? Um, and and then my follow-up question is, are you also measuring NPS for specific care delivery experiences on top of like traditional HCAP scores collections?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Josh. Um, typically we measure net promoter score wrapped around a specific encounter or visit that encounter can be virtual. It can be synchronous or in person, whatever, whatever it might, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if we've ever actually done that though, for a specific longitudinal care journey, let's say an OB journey or, you know, a, a total knee replacement because of, to be perfectly frank, there's still a, um, a problematic fragmentation of care. Um, I, I, would say that there's probably an opportunity to string that together as long as everyone's tracking against the same metric and kind of create a composite out of that. But, um, that's only as good as your methodology.
2: Fair enough. Um, so Ben, the reason we know you um, is you know MultiCare has partnered with Seamless MD um, over the past couple of years to do a, a system-wide rollout of um, digital care journeys to engage and monitor patients undergoing different journeys. So that could be uh, you know hip and knee surgery, spine, bariatrics, maternity care. Those are things that we've launched so far with MultiCare. Um, could you take us back uh, you know a couple of years ago to share with um, folks what motivated MultiCare to go down this path of implementing digital care journeys and how that fit into the overall digital transformation strategy.
1: Absolutely. So in my previous role as Director of Technology Advisory Services, my job was to translate the business requirements across a number of different business units and specialty service lines and hospitals and other facilities and and you know new models of care and figure out what is the way in which we're going to get the most bang for our buck from a technology perspective. And what we started to see is people were beginning to realize, well, I need to be able to do two things. I need to be able to engage with patients at every step in their high reliability care journey, right? A set of protocols or pathways or plans where we know exactly what's going to happen along each step of the way. And that ultimately is going to become the multi-care standard, regardless of whether you're getting that care at a hospital in QIAP or Tacoma or in Spokane. And so for us, we saw that not just in orthopedics, or in cardiology or in bariatrics, but across a number of different service lines. And the other thing that we realized is we actually don't need just, um, you know, microtransactions that help with, um, you know, high reliability care or with high efficiency of use of resources, whether it's with um, appointment reminders or a reminder not to, you know, uh, eat or drink, you know, the night before your surgery, whatever it might be. But some content that was definitely a little more co- contextually aware from a clinical perspective. And I think that we had a hard time finding who was going to be able to do both of those things, right? You can hire someone or you can hire, you can, you can hire a vendor or, or a couple of team members to manage a, a my chart SMS gateway. And that that'll do some of the lighter load stuff. You can go source clinical content from a number of different providers and pay a pretty penny in order to kind of feed that in into your after visit summary. But we really wanted something that was end to end and focused on the journey, the way that we wanted to focus on that entire customer journey, and honestly, the way that a lot of pairs are shifting their mentality to. And so uh, the other, I think, forcing function to this was our need to meet a lot of different requirements, whether it was with... Uh, a payer that said, well, if you want to be in business with us for this specific bundle, here are some of the things that we're gonna say from a functional perspective you need. Or even from a state level cl- uh, cl- clinical quality collaborative, they might've needed a shared decision-making module or something else. And it was through the help of these various vendors who agreed to come together and realize, okay, I don't get my point solution for my specific specialty or even for this specific um, you know, a care journey or bundle that I want to wrap an entire service around we're gonna really um, uh, solve for uh, elasticity of the solution, go for one set of integrations, um, and essentially combine both the clinically, contextually aware content with those kind of single transactional capabilities. And that kind of whole hog drove us to really working with with SeamlessMD. And I think what made things easiest was not just um, an interest in uh, peddling what folks already had, we're saying this is the way integration works. Take it, or, or even from a terms perspective, it was really around growing together and figuring out how do we um, make that shift from. And I'm going to use the catchphrase "volume to value" uh, with you know longitudinal episodes of care, care plans, so to speak, across you know wrapped around a procedure, um, and, and have that platform grow with us as our payment models continue to uh, modernize over time.
2: So I had mean, to give a kudos to yourself, Ben, and the team at Multicare. You, you've been really, really um, nimble partners, I would say, in how quickly uh, you've not just implemented, but supported um, the partnerships. So, a shout out to you and the team. Can't, can't say anything but the great words about, about how cloud you are. And uh, I think for some other you know, innovators or companies out there looking for a great partner to, to, to you know, innovate and grow quickly, Multicare um, has been a fantastic one. So, shout out to you for that. Um, and actually, maybe uh, Alan's okay. I'm gonna jump around a little bit in terms of our, our agenda. Um, I think that the multi-care capital partners story is is, is unique. Um, I think you know we've been seeing in the environment the last couple of years um, that health systems having these innovation and strategic investment arms is. I wouldn't say it's that common, but amongst one of the leading health systems, it's starting to become um, something that they do. Um, And many, you know, outside of Multicare and a few others haven't really embarked on this strategy just yet. So do you mind sharing uh, with the audience, um, first, like, how do you view your role with Multicare Capital Partners and why are leading systems like Multicare going down this path of having these strategic investment arms?
1: So I think that a lot of this boils down actually to uh, organizational philosophy. Um, I'm, I'm on some calls with other health system VCs, and sometimes the, the story or the talk track that I hear is, is actually um, a concern of, of new entrance threats, competitors, right? And to the extent that partnering is of interest to these new entrants, right, to the market, the folks who really want to transform care. Um, we try to we try to figure out: is there a complementary opportunity here, or is this something that is truly redundant to an initiative we're already going down, or something we're trying to work on for ourselves? And if, even if not, what can we learn from them? I think that that's a much more progressive mindset, and part of the reason why I've been at MultiCare as long as I haven't, and will be here for as long as you know our, our leadership team is here. And and I would say that for us, uh, we would rather be your friends and colleagues and lose lunch money to competitors entirely, right? And and I think that. Um, There is certainly kind of two different ways in which we view ourselves. One is around challenging our own operators and leadership teams to to think differently as a forcing function. So if that means that this demo that I put you in front of changes your strategic plan or forces you to consider something differently that you had never thought about, awesome. If it means that you actually want to go one step further and partner with these groups because they make you better, Uh, all all the more fruitful for us, right? And so that understanding, the education, the learning, not just for myself or for the MCP team, but for everybody, I think is a really strong platform. But then the second is really around advising and and, and, and really uh, hardwiring incentive alignment, right? Um, We want to grow with these companies. We think that there are some that are certainly worth investing in. And this organizational philosophy ties back down to our mission, which is partnering for healing in a healthy future. The healing part, I think we're all familiar with. The healthy future part points to what health, where healthcare is going, and our partnerships don't just stop at you know the local affiliates or other healthcare organizations in the industry. It also goes out to our constituents, to our customers, and our colleagues, um, our you know the consumers that that go through our care uh, journeys every single day, and that that's also true for some of the, the new entrants and the innovators who we really could stand to learn from. And so in some of those instances, we've brought some of those folks in and they've helped advise us on what our strategy should be. Um, and what I love about MCP is that uh, while, yes, we're there to line ourselves up with series, you know, seed stage to series B or C companies and, and help them grow, uh, I like to think that at, at MultiCare, we've got the right balance of size and scale and capability where we're not so big, where we're lost and we don't know who the leaders are at each of the individual hospitals or operating units um, who are providing frontline clinical care. And yet we're not too small to where we can't afford to make investments or carve out um, a budget or, or um, you know, the flexibility to invest in co-developing a capability with someone else. And that keeps things on for, for us and for the, the organization too, to be kind of observing the, the, the frontiers of, of healthcare transformation.
0: Yeah, I can totally see that. I think it's neat, just you know, your your views on collaboration and how co-developing these programs together really benefits everyone in the ecosystem. I think just following this track, another question we had: MultiCare is a is, is a member of a number of healthcare networks like Avia and the Innovation Institute, the Scottsdale Institute, and so forth. And collaboration of this type uh, to advance innovation seems much more common in healthcare than other industries. And I'm curious to understand why do you think that is and what do you view the role of these membership kind of ecosystems? How do they play a role in helping multi-care accelerate its innovation efforts?
1: I think it speaks to the intricacy of what healthcare is and what it requires, right? Um, There are some historical regulatory or or, or other kind of circumstantial barriers, right, um, that have created a level of you know, uh, organizational organization information asymmetry, and so for us having these forcing functions and forums to learn from one another and share ideas is is huge. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take the Innovation Institute for example. I it really makes me wonder just how many great ideas that frontline clinical staff members or members of a healthcare organization and care delivery team have that die on the vine or are kind of episodic and then you know never never come back again. And I think that that runs very counter to our philosophy and certainly innovation Institute's philosophy that anyone is capable of being an entrepreneur, not just someone who, you know, happened to go to a certain school or receive the right education or, you know, um, happens to be in a circumstance where they're exposed to this all the time. And so if there are ways in which we can inspire creativity among our team members uh, that, that helps us. And I think that when it comes to uh, our strategy at MCP of, sourcing, picking, and winning, identifying industry trends among uh, other organizations, whether it's at Scottsdale or, or uh, through Avia, et cetera, helps us a ton in terms of the, the fidelity of our selection process. You know, I think that some health systems are are very much in danger of becoming an echo chamber, right, or really following through with whatever one or two people in the organization say. And so for us, diversifying that opinion only gives us a higher level of confidence, not unlike... Running a, a trial or a study.
2: And then uh, I'm curious your thoughts on um, how do I say this? One of the neat, sort of strange, but interesting things about healthcare is that in many ways, your collaborators, depending on your region, couldn't, couldn't actually be your competitors. So you're in these ecosystems of these health innovation. Networks and collaboratives, and you're often sharing best practices, and, and you even start sharing data and learnings and insights on innovation. Um, um, but you know the the folks in the room, depending on who you're presenting to, actually might be compared next door as a health system. Yet at the same time, though, we're all in this together to improve healthcare for for you know, patients everywhere. And so, in some ways, we we want to help our neighbors get better because we all care about um, you know patient outcomes. Um, so, so I'm just wondering, is there a point at which these ecosystems actually want to stay small in a way so that way folks can be transparent and share and learn together and get better and avoid getting so big that maybe people don't want to share what they're doing because everyone's in the room and it gets a little bit strange. I'm curious, like what that dynamic is like in some of these, um, you know, closed door meetings almost.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I I can't speak to that as much as some of my colleagues can in terms of their presence and what gets talked about. Um, More often than not, because of the breadth and the number of folks who are participating in these networks. So here's an example, the Innovation Institute has six member health systems and they largely don't have contiguous or overlapping geographies. Um, That makes it really easy for us to be really, to really speak transparently to, hey, here's my number one problem and how are you solving it? What are you thinking about? What are you seeing in the industry? Um, and I think that having a high level of trust with the mediators of those conversations, right, our kind of counterparts who work at these organizations, helps a lot to identify some of the facilitated uh, introductions or one-on-ones. to say, well, you know, don't I have the person for you to chat with? They've done some really, they've really matured their thinking in this space, and we would love for you then to, to speak with them. Um, and I think that these forms are large enough to, to where you can learn um, a, a significant amount from really any health system that's up there presenting on the podium and part of an industry trend. The other piece that I found really fascinating is some of the de-identified benchmarking and feedback mechanisms that are out there. For instance, if I needed to know more about another startup um, that, that is trying to you know, sell into our health system, and we're really not quite sure, uh, just asking around some of these other uh, health systems that are at the table in um, and, and any of these forms is, is tremendously helpful. Or if it comes to benchmarking data of, well, this is how you're performing or this is you know how much you spend relative to your peers who are adjusted for size and geography and breadth. Um, both of those things are, I think, really helpful contributions that still make it worthwhile to us outside of the peer-to-peer feedback mechanism.
2: Yeah. yeah, but that's totally fair and that, make, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Maybe a, a, you brought this up earlier and then Alan had this this great question here. So by the way, just for, for the audience listening, Alan's one who does all the hard work <laughs> in preparing for this. And sometimes I just, I uh, segue into some of his questions, but you brought mentorship that you've had and how you've had some great mentors who just kind of threw you in the, in the deep end, which I, which I love because I think in many ways, like until you're forced to kind of tread on your own, it's like, it's hard to, to really learn. Um, so I think that was like a great story you shared earlier. Um, and it's also, you know, I think why you've shared in the past in some some conversations, um, why you also yourself now spend the time to create space for your mentees um, to succeed and do well. Can you like dive a bit more into, you know, why you feel having mentors and then also
1: later on being a mentor is so important for growth? Uh, it, mentorship is something that's very deeply personal to me. And it's because since undergrad and grad school, I've had different People who've taken me under their wing in different points in my life and have given me really two things. One is the kind of the X's and O's, the tactical stuff, right? Here's how I'd approach this conversation. What's an issue that you're dealing with today? How are you going to go about it? But I think more than anything, um, particularly in this world of social media and LinkedIn and everyone having a big fancy title, et cetera. Um, I'm sure a lot of emerging leaders will resonate with this, but a lot of people probably feel a ton of anxiety and imposter syndrome. I know I did when I first started my career. I still feel it to this day in different forms, depending on where I'm at. And so I think that the core message that every single aspiring leader needs to hear is that you belong, right? And to have great mentors who will both challenge you to push you out of your comfort zone just a little bit and know what that line is. And at the same time, reassure you, and I'll never forget some of the words that my, my preceptor in the fellowship, Christy, shared with me, which was, you know, um, and she said it to me as though, you know, she said it to me like my mom did when I was trying on a new pair of shoes. Don't worry, you'll grow into it. And so pushing that person, instilling the confidence in them has been huge. And over time, I've always thought of myself as having my own personal board of directors. And these are lifelong mentors that I've always wanted to stay in touch with. And if, if you haven't heard of this concept before, I'd highly encourage it because I feel like you can find that slate of four, six, eight, however many people it is who can be your individual confidants um, and, and to show gratitude to them. And I think that this is intended to be part of a virtuous cycle, right? Uh, sure, there might be things that I can do for my mentors from a work performance perspective or maybe to help them find the next volunteer opportunity, whatever it might be. Uh, but I don't think that, um, I, to me, it's always felt not incongruent, but slightly imbalanced. But every time I've asked them, "What can what can I do to, to help you?" They say, "Well, pay it forward," the same way that you know I helped you. And that's where i I found a, a lot of meaning in making time for folks and making sure that you know they 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 can they can spread the wings too. And I don't think that it's ever too early to do that. It's really interesting because I think that some of the lessons that I learned from whether it was my parents or some mentor that I had in graduate school or. And um, it, it, I had a mentor in graduate school. His name was Jeff Sconyers. He was the general counsel at Seattle Children's for 20 years and was my professor at grad school. I'll make it my first job. And um, he always talked about being a mile wide and an inch deep from a skill set perspective. Um, And I found myself using that exact same phrase two weeks later at a wheelchair basketball practice with a guy who was a great shooter, but wasn't a great defender or passer yet. (laughs) And I said, hey, if you want to go play at the next level, you got to be a mile wide and inch deep in everything that you do. Um, And today he's he's making me very proud. Uh, He's now a senior at Auburn University. They're on a partial scholarship to play intercollegiate basketball and uh, is uh, now an alternate on the United States Paralympic team. And so I I think that... um, cross-pollinating the lessons that we learn from, from one environment to another, there's a lot of value in that.
0: Yeah, totally agree with that. Actually. And Ben, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, uh, volunteer work that you're doing. You've been with the, um, I can't remember the organization's name, but the wheelchair basketball team for quite a while now. Um, and I'm curious, how did that start? Like what drew you into, to get involved there?
1: Yeah, I, um, I think coming back to Seattle after a few years away, there was something missing beyond the regular school, job, self-care piece, and some another way to be pushed, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, that that's, that's really how I fell into it. I, I had never had any intention of coaching. I just wanted to show up and, you know, rebound for kids and, you know, teach them how to shoot, and that was about it. Um, but then the, the volunteer executive director at the time said, well, uh, we need a coach this year, and if it's not you, they're not going to get to play in this tournament this Saturday. <laughs> so that's, I guess, one way to conscript someone into it. <laughs> um, and just like work, I think I've, I fell into it and kind of ran with it. Um, and thankfully, I had kids who were uh, both thoughtful and wise and humble and smart enough to know that their, their coach didn't know much about the tactics of wheelchair basketball, which is very different from, you know, stand-up, able-bodied basketball – But all the same, um, there was still uh, um, an opportunity for me to learn when it came to analyzing someone's skill set, motivating them to push harder, uh, thinking about the events, whatever it might be. And um, I think that it became something where um, the first couple of years, what I was really focused on was giving back and some of the pillow soft thinking of, you know, oh, I'm doing so, you know, I'm I'm trying to volunteer and do good in the world. And I I think that uh, where I began to let things go a little. Was when I was just as intense and competitive and about skill building um, and competition as the kids on the team were, and that's when I think I actually began to let go of any any biases or to be able to see people for their disabilities and truly begin to see folks for you know just being another person who wanted to compete in a sport just as much as I did, um, and I think that's that's where I got a lot of joy out of it. Um, Dating back to the origins uh, of this, I've, I've known a few people and whether it's family or friends who have uh, disabilities and have always felt as though there's been an opportunity for folks to find the same level of competition. And so, and through some great experiences in college, I, I got to be exposed to that um, to really see this happen, whether it was down in the Bay Area or across the country and uh, instantly got hooked. It was my two loves, basketball and volunteering blended into one.
2: That's really cool. So, so, so Ben,
1: uh, I, so I have two follow-up questions. First one I'll
2: ask is, you mentioned that there are some maybe unexpected tactics that you actually employ in wheelchair basketball. Uh, I, mean, I was just curious, like what is something that like, um, people wouldn't expect, but is actually
1: maybe a big thing in, in the tactics there? Sure, sure. So um, something that I think is fascinating is, um, is what's called picking someone out. And this is where it's transition, you know, it's transition offense. You get a rebound, you kind of make your outlet pass, right? But on offense, what will happen is you'll usually have a faster player try to literally stop a defensive player who's trying to get back on defense from being able to even advance into their into their half of the court. So it, it, it's, it's kind of like bullying. I'm not going to lie, mm-hmm. but it's hilarious because sometimes you'll have, you know, a very, very kind of low to the ground, low class player who's like a one or 1. 1.5. So it means that they have a higher level disability, maybe from the chest down, but because they're low to the ground and they're strong, they can push harder and faster than someone who sits up really high in their chair and is maybe a 4 or 4-5, you know, someone who's an amputee. And so it's really incredible to watch that person create a mismatch on defense, uh, on offense. And the reason why that's tremendously viable is now you have a four-on-four opportunity. You're spreading the floor out, right? So that way your team can operate with more space and that creates better opportunities for offense. What's even better is watching two or three pickouts happen at once. (laughs) And now you've got a two on two or three on three situation. One person releases and now you've got a temporary three on two or four on three um, opportunity to capitalize on you swing the ball enough. You find the open shot. And so that's something for us that we train a lot. And it's probably the reason why um, for a lot of our practices, we emphasize being the fastest and most physical team. And we started every practice and ended every practice with sprints. And that made That turned, you know, these 14, 15-year-old kids who were playing video games and eating junk food into, honestly, little Spartans. And that was really, really, that was a fun transformation to watch.
2: That's awesome. And then second follow-up question is more of a generic basketball question. So we're recording this on June fourteenth, 2022. I'm assuming you are a fan of the NBA and have some take on what's going on. Um, The Warriors are up 3-2. Do you have a pick now for how this is going to, how the finals are going to end up? And then yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have think, uh, write in a couple of weeks when this um, goes yeah,
1: live. So. <laughs> yeah, I um, So I might be wrong, and, and you're so welcome to keep this as part of the pod. <laughs> but uh, I think I'm going to call Warriors in seven. And, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I think Curry will still get the MVP, but I wouldn't be surprised if Andrew Wiggins got a couple of votes. Mm-hmm. He showed up last night uh, on the defensive end. He was he was really cooking when it came to getting to the rim. Um, I think Boston's a really hard environment to play in, and, you know, the fans are too proud to let this happen. So um I expect to hear a lot of yelling over the mic or a lot of silent uh blips during the broadcast on Thursday.
2: <laughs> yeah I think uh, I, I picked words in six at the beginning, but I think it could go seven. Um and I, I think uh, Steph will be the MVP, but we'll see. We'll see. Um all right, maybe I'll back to healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> Well, although, actually, although, although maybe we can start a basketball podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll do a spit up Bill Simmons,
1: hit uh, us up.
0: Yeah. Um, so, the, actually, I, I don't have uh, necessarily a healthcare, digital healthcare related question for you, Ben, but um, I did want to ask about um, a topic you've talked about in the past, which is around model minorities. Um, and I think you've talked in a, on a previous podcast on health equity about uh, model minorities and why you believe taking pride in being a model minority uh, actually could damage the uh, opportunity for other minorities. And I believe diversity and inclusion within a system only can make that system better, and healthcare being a system that's built for the community is no exception. And so I was curious, how has your experience as an Asian American shaped your views on healthcare leadership? And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome to get to where you are today?
1: So I think that there's a delicate balance because two truths can exist at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? But one truth is, I think, the farce or the myth of a model minority. And I think that the best way it's been explained to me and the best way that I've ever thought about it is that um, being termed a model minority almost feels like a a badge or Mm -hmm. a comparative you know, um, less than or better than kind of measuring stick. Um, in that, there's only one archetype or one work style that actually contributes value in the business world, and that's simply not true. And the last thing I want to do is be used as a comparison to someone else who, you know, is is not a you know cisgendered white male, right? To to be to to then you know be compared to. That that's not what the the value really is. Um, at the same time I think that there is room in both the working world and in our personal lives to be proud of whatever our heritage is right this last month was API month and we wanted to make sure that we celebrated that this month is pride month we want to make sure we celebrate that as well and so I think that there is room to have to build be proud of what your heritage is and to be careful about what types of labels come with that and I think that particularly um, you know my role as, as an Asian American leader in healthcare is, is actually meant around pushing boundaries for others too and standing up for you know, every cause um, that, that exists where you know, specific ethnic or racial or, or other groups have been um, you know, marginalized or oppressed in the past. And so for us, that means celebrating the various holidays and months of the year where things are, really stick out for us. It means embracing people for the diversity and the unique thinking that they bring to us and rewarding people who might be seen as contrarians, because at the end of the day, what they bring to us is all in the interest of, of making us better. And you know, I, I have a lot of gratitude to give to um, our multi-care senior leadership team, because at the past, in past organizations, I've worked at the, the lack of diversity on some of the calls is pretty staggering. And so there's not a lot of, there weren't a lot of people in the room like me, whether it was from a, a race, ethnicity, or from an age perspective. And when I look at someone like Florence Chang, my boss, who's the, the president of MultiCare and was previously our chief operating officer and previously before that our CIO, um, she paved a huge path in that regard. But I think that embracing diversity and equity and inclusion is not necessarily about where the stats are today or saying we're good enough. It's actually rejecting that mentality and having a continuous growth mindset as an organization, as an individual to say, you know, we can always be and get better, right? Most boardrooms and C-suites still are not nearly diverse enough, and that forces us to do um, a better job of representing, right, the constituents and the patients that we serve, um, of representing the workforce that we want to attract. And really looking at the data with the same level of rigor that you would when you're measuring your net promoter score, your turnaround time, or your budget, for that instance. And so, um, you know, I I think that the way we we should be thinking about it is, I know what you I know what you as an organization, you as an individual are capable of when you really put your thinking cap on and apply your business acumen. So why wouldn't you do the same thing in this direction from a diversity and equity inclusion um, lens? And so, you know, the the last thing I'll say is. I think that, and this goes back to um, imposter syndrome, anxiety, age appropriateness, et cetera. Uh, you know, I, I still face that today. And I, I, I wrestle with, you know, okay, you know, people see you for who you are. And so what are what are you going to do about it? And that that is another opportunity for me to just continue to um, build, add more tools to my toolbox or, or refine them. It's probably a better way of putting it.
2: You know, that brings, that actually reminds
1: something else you brought from um, earlier,
2: Ben, which I really liked. I mean, you actually, you brought a couple of things I already liked that, uh, that I actually didn't dig into, but maybe, maybe I, I want to at some point. Um, one was, um, I loved how you mentioned earlier, you had some mentors who, um, I think one of the phrases was, you know, don't worry if the shoes are too big, you're going to grow into them. And I think it reminds me of how um, just having someone who says that they believe in you, can be so powerful because of imposter syndrome sometimes where you don't think you're good enough or capable but then it's just knowing someone actually believes in you is so powerful and like I, i've had times here where um you know i did believe in someone but I, I didn't i didn't actually say it out loud i kind of assumed that like they knew that i believe that they could do it even though maybe they hadn't done it before and it was new but in my, in my head i believe they could do it but then it wasn't until they told me that, you know, just me saying it made a big difference. And then, then maybe you've like really rewired my brain around, okay, like you have to sometimes vocalize the support you have for people, just for them to know that someone believes in it. It's so powerful. Um, so what you said reminded me of that. So I just wanted, wanted to share that. It is a really, really big thing. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because like, even I feel imposter syndrome still, right? Like with, with, you know, this company and my role. And it's like, I think, um, I mean, now I'm more comfortable with it. I think, like talking to folks like yourself, um, I know it's such a common feeling. So for me, it's been like pretty normalized. But I think to your point, for a lot of people, it's not. You know, unless you get exposure to, unless you know that someone like Ben is like, yeah, I feel imposter syndrome too. It's hard to realize that everyone feels that way. Um, so I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that. I, I think that's that's really helpful for the audience, especially folks listening who a lot of I think our audience. Is, is you know interested in exploring moving into healthcare leadership, um, but has that sort of anxiety or, 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 you know, mental block around, am I good enough? You know, can I do it? So thank you for, for being vulnerable and sharing that it's so powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that, Josh. Um, you know, there's, there's two observations that I made in the last month that have kind of helped me solidify that belief and give me a willingness to share it. Um, the first was, uh, you know, I, I, was over at a colleague's house, uh, the other day, just for a, a quick meal, it was a social irony, he just said, Hey, I've dinner with my family. Why not? Um, so shout out to Michael Hahn, uh, my chief medical information officer at Care Connect, because this activity they did with this family, it was, it was subtle, but it was really powerful. And he said, you know, before we eat, um, and he's got two teenage kids he said, before we, we sit down on, together, uh, for dinner and eat, um, we always share one thing that we're grateful for. And I think that attitude of um, that activity of gratitude is really powerful and underrated and more often than not the gratitude that I usually have um, boils down to the gratitude that that I feel for individual team members and that belief in them so I've always found that to be a really useful exercise and we, we do it a lot at multi-care too um, and then the second was um, for those of for the folks who are in a new leadership position or you know, or have expanding, you know, responsibilities of leadership positions. Um, my, I have a, I have a coach of mine, his name is Bruce Merrill. And he said a couple of times to me, said, well, Ben, you know, if you want to be a really great leader, there are probably some times where you're going to have to accept that, you know, in order for you to figure that out, you're going to have to be a, a, a you're going to have to be a, a sometimes a mediocre one. <laughs> and I, I'm not, I don't want to settle for that, so to speak, but he said, yeah, there'll be times where it's going to feel like that. And you're going to, you're going to be okay with it. Yeah, there's a reassurance in that regard. (laughs)
0: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I I picked up like you're clearly a winner and you look to win always, but having failure really is the pathway forward uh, from learning perspective. So that makes a lot of sense. I do want to bring things back to digital health uh, just as we round out this podcast and right before we jump over to the fast five. Today, Ben, there is an explosion of patient-facing digital health uh, innovations, all these different kinds of solutions, digital care journeys, like we mentioned, but besides digital care journeys, what most excites you today?
1: Yeah, um, it sounds really simple, but asynchronous care is totally where things are going to go. Um, And it could be as simple as chat. I hope it's not. Uh, I think natural language processing absolutely has a role to play and I think that this uh, getting away from encounter by encounter level or visit by visit data into more of a longitudinal health record is going to make a lot more sense for us because some of these uh, these these um, interactions are going to be brief and we're gonna have, have the tools and we have tools that are emerging that can differentiate between um, you know a an encounter that is, um, or, or, or an exchange that is administrative in nature or is just an appointment reminder, just something that has, you know, true clinical value. So to me, um, using text as the way in which we're, as, as our base data set um, and all of these different um, clinical notes is, is going to be huge. And I could see that percolating to some specialty care, home-based care. Um, and I think that there are some companies that do this well. I mean, setting up a HIPAA compliant private chat is not hard it's augmenting that experience for the patient and provider to really accelerate down to what is actually happening. That is going to be huge. And that's where, you know, really interesting companies like Buoy health or 98.6. I mean, solve is doing that for us today. Everyone has their own flavor of it. And I got, I first got really inspired by this because, you know, as was putting together asynchronous, uh, you know, protocols, right. Of branching logic. And so the next step to that is adding more flexibility. If, you know, some human couldn't anticipate what was gonna happen next in that branching logic pathway. So I think that that's one thing that's really fascinating. And, you know, Josh, I think that, you know, you and I have talked about that too, is something that single certainly has the potential for when we think about patient reported outcomes and escalations. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a really interesting opportunity that's going to emerge um, with, with uh, a continued expansion and scalability of, of um, turning our phone into your, your home-based medical device and diagnostic tool that's going to take a long time you know we're bound by the constraints of what the hardware and firmware is capable of but it has huge disruptive potential and i'm still really really interested in it um you know i think that uh, healthcare affordability and attainability is something that needs still needs a lot of work and so price transparency tools are continuing to emerge already exist um, i really admire Heather Fernandez at Solve, who's been really pushing hard on, um, you know, really making sure that every consumer journey and experience is well informed, knowing exactly what the hell you're going to get paid and being really crisp on that at the time of service. Um, And, you know, for folks who are interested in what's going to be happening out in the future, uh, I'm really actually interested in what's happening in China. Um, I think China has done, uh, there are some companies out in China that have done an incredible job of accelerating what digital healthcare transformation looks like. Um, Companies like Ping An, Good Doctor, that have already created international, you know, subspecialty telemedicine networks, or the fact that they could stand up a hospital in, you know, what was it, three weeks or four weeks using, you know, modular design. um, That's transformative. And it should be pushing us to be better because when you think about building a new hospital and a major capital facility plan, right, the master plan you're talking about, 12, 18, 24 months here in the United States. And then the last thing that I'll say is um, the silver tsunami is absolutely real. And so the, no, the more that, uh, the more com- I think that there's going to be a proliferation of companies or the growth of several companies um, in the space of elder care, um, particularly particularly for MediMedis or other PACE programs, That that's going to be absolutely tremendous because we've got to find a way to take care of, um, you know, this, this aging uh, boomer generation. I love that. Amazing. Awesome.
0: So uh, Ben, let's jump over to what we call the fast five lightning round. Five questions to get to know you better for our audience. Uh, First question we have. What is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most?
1: You know, just in line with our uh, conversation mindset by Carol Dweck.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that book too. Uh, Question two. This is specific for you. What instrument did you play during your undergrad? And do you still play?
1: Uh, I was a trombone. Uh, I played in the Cal Marching Band as part of the little script cow that you see on the football field and was in jazz ensemble. I don't play today. Uh, that is my next endeavor when mm-hmm. I can get four to six hours a week back. I really right. want to get back into it. That's awesome.
0: Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds?
1: I would love to be able to read people's minds. <laughs> so, there's a follow-up <laughs> question that,
2: that, we'll, that we always ask. <laughs> Uh, what if you can't turn it off?
1: Oh, I then I think I'd rather have super speed. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> it's always the way. Uh, it's yeah, good. There's, yeah. always,
1: there's always something is knowing too much. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, question four: What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane?
1: So uh, for folks who are outside of healthcare, I think that people will find fax machines insane. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I think that for people who are inside of it, uh, I think that you should look up what a certificate of need is uh, Mm -hmm. because some people will look at the requirements for it and think, how is this, what is driving strategic decisions in healthcare today? Interesting. Wild to me, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Last question that we have, Ben, this is a pandemic lockdown related question what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic?
1: I have an embarrassing answer and I have a straight answer. So my (laughs) straight answer is that I started getting into golf. Mm, Nice. Uh, It's actually been a lot of fun. I totally understand what people say when it's a mental game and you're playing Mm -hmm. against yourself as opposed to a course or whatever it might be. So I found a lot of fun with that um although seattle's not the great place not a great place to pick Mm -hmm. it up because it's raining half the time Mm -hmm. uh the embarrassing answer is i got into Fortnite because my friends and i from college (laughs) needed to do something to bond and catch up together (laughs) although i i have promised you (laughs) that (laughs) stop
2: yeah you you know ben with the growth of um esports i I think maybe in 10 years golf will be the embarrassing answer and Fortnite will be the cool answer so (laughs) you're just an early adopter
1: you know, the, what people are going to say is the blended answer. And I don't know if it's going to fall on the side of pool or, or dorky is um, virtual golf using, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an Oculus mm-hmm. Quest or something like that. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, actually, they, they've opened up. I know there's actual facilities like for, you know, a virtual uh, driving range and you hit against that. But they've opened up. Uh, I think it's Top Golf, where it's like, you know, they're real competitive. Like everybody gets there, have a drink, play. It's really fun. <laughs> It's um, a great time.
1: And and no, Alan, I was not at a screen golf facility last week. <laughs> <for fun. laughs>
0: <Were you? Yeah. laughs> That's great. Uh, well, awesome. Ben, thanks for taking the time to come on the show with us today. You've shared a lot about uh, multi-care and the way that you're viewing uh, digital health moving forward and some of the strategic initiatives that you're involved with, some of your thoughts on the future. I really love it. Um, you can find Ben on Twitter at Berk Chow. I believe it is B-E-R-K-C-H-A-O. Uh, and that's a wrap for this episode of the Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, www.seamless.md. Thank you, Ben, so much.
1: Thanks Thank for you. having me.